that's part of life as being super nerdy, but some of you may fall into that category as well. And so I feel like I'm in good company. And so I think we can do this. And it's not the resurrection problem that's the normal one that you hear today, um, which is like, it runs sort of like this. Well, dead people don't usually rise from the dead, so certainly that couldn't have happened. This isn't a problem for me, because if it weren't for natural law and if it weren't for scientific laws, then there wouldn't be any miracles. Miracles are dependent upon science in order to exist. I mean, this is an amazing thing because it doesn't usually happen. And if it happened all the time, we wouldn't be stopping 2,000 years later to be excited about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> but this is remarkable. And that's why it's significant. And we can, we can glean from the fact that Jesus rose from the dead that... if. If we knew nothing other than Jesus rose from the dead, we'd have to stop and look because we'd know something amazing was going on here. So that's not the problem. The problem to me is a much bigger problem than that. It's a problem that the rabbis had and the teachers of Israel had for millennia. And it's a problem that really comes to the fore in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53. But it comes to the fore throughout Messianic prophecy. And it was such a serious problem that it was perhaps put into place in order to, um, to keep us from recognizing Messiah until after the fact. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was something that was what in, in prophecy was something that was widely foretold but never foreseen. And that's something that has a unique divine advantage across time. And so I want us to play around with this idea a little bit of the widely foretold and never foreseen um, and see it in a couple of these texts like Psalm 22. And maybe we can jump there. Psalm 22 has a kind of, it's present, but it has some caveats because we see the help of the Lord there. And yet it's so completely tied to the crucifixion of Jesus that you, that we know from this side of things that the writer, the narrator of the psalm, who isn't perhaps the narrator, had to die in it. And so let me pray for us. We're going to read a little bit of Psalm 22 look at some of the problems there. We're going to go to Isaiah 52 and 53 and look at some of the problems there. And then I'm going to give you a theory about, or some words about what I think, not, we talk, you know, I talk a lot, I think, about what the resurrection means. But I think I want to say a little bit about what the resurrection says today to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together, for your goodness and your grace to us for this incredible day that we remember that your son is risen indeed, that he is raised from the dead, and that that changes everything. That we have life, we have hope, and we have infinite possibility because what we thought was the back wall of a tomb ended up being the front door to eternity. So this morning we ask that you would... Uh, open our eyes and hearts to even more of the wonder of what you've done for us and how clear your love is for us that you want us to be able to be where you are and bind us together in that love and uh, 
Ignite this time with your presence and your joy by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you flip over to Psalm 22, if you can, and it begins with words that you know as words from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it ends with what could also be words from the cross where it says the Lord has accomplished this. Or you put it in a good Matthew theological passive. It is finished. And if you think of this psalm as encompassing um, the words of our Lord on the cross, and you think of perhaps our Lord reciting and referencing this on the cross as being his expression to us who have ears to hear of what he understands that he is doing in his death. Now, we don't have all, we don't have all ears to hear because he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and the Jews standing on the ground said, look, he's calling for Elijah. They knew this song. They should have got what he was saying. Of course, there's good fig- messianic figure in his calling for Elijah. They were kind of on the right track, but they, they missed what he was saying there. And it's easy for us to miss what he's saying as well. But this is clearly a psalm about the pierced one. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry by day. You do not answer by night. I have no rest. And yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were delivered. But then he goes on to describe himself and his situation in verse 11. And after he says that don't be far from me for trouble is near. There's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They've opened their wide, their wide, their mouths as ravening and roaring lions. I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And they cast lots for my clothing. I was going through a a Bible study many years ago with um, my friend Bernie Kaganovich. And he had never read the New Testament before, although he knew something of its content. And I was trying to show through reading the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. And we'd been working our way through Genesis and Exodus. And one day I just kind of wanted to cut to the chase. And I turned to this text with him and asked him to read it. And I said, who is this about? And he said, it's about Jesus. And I asked him, then how could it have been written by King David? And uh, he had no answer. And so for anyone who has heard the story of Jesus, we can't help but hear in this psalm. I mean, it's there. We can't help. We can't get away from it. And it's clear that the Messiah is poured into the dust of death. So here's my question for you. I'd love to go through this verse by verse. There's so much packed in there. 
But how does the one who's poured into the dust of death in verse 22 tell of the Lord's name to my brothers and sisters and praise the Lord in the midst of the assembly? And um, how does he then later praise God in the midst of the great assembly? How does he pay his vows, as he says also, to the Lord to such a degree that the afflicted here are glad and they eat? And it's important to, to hear this when, when in Israel you um, asked God for something, you often, you often made a vow to praise. And that is you said, Lord, I cry out to you for help. I need you. And when you take care of this, I'm going to praise you in the midst of the assembly. And praising you in the midst of the assembly meant that you brought sacrifices to do it. And bringing those sacrifices to do it meant that there was a feast. You brought those sacrifices and it was barbecue excellent. And it was a time when the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow, and the Levite could come and be fed. And as long as God's people praised him, the rest of God's people never went hungry. But what you did at that feast is you stood up and said, I want to tell you why we're eating today. I didn't think I was going to make it. And I cried out to God and he brought me through. And that's why we're having this feast. And in this, the psalmist says, the psalmist who's poured out to death (laughs) is saying that in my deliverance, when you deliver me, the result is going to be a feast for God's people when we praise him because of what you've done. But this is not going to be your normal feast in the temple because it says, look in verse 27, the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. The families of the nations will worship before you. This is going to be a testimony that's so powerful that it's going to cause the worship of Yahweh around the globe. I want to know how does a dead guy praise the Lord? How does he pay his vows? And how does his death and the testimony of that death cause the worship of Yahweh around the globe? Seems kind of unlikely, right? Okay, let's flip over to Psalm, to Isaiah 52. We, I don't think we read this as well as we ought because we don't understand this idea of being high and lifted up being marred and sprinkling nations. And remember that sprinkling is God's way of making clean and fit for worship objects and persons. Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many people were, as many were astonished at you, my people, that is the people who suffered and would go into exile. So his appearance was more marred than any other and his form more than the sons of men. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. This picture is not a picture of being lifted up, lifted up in exaltation. It's a picture of being lifted up and being displayed as being totally mutilated to such a degree that like hyssop on a stick, dipped in the blood of a lamb and in water would be used to sprinkle 
the furniture and the people in order to sanctify them for worship. This servant is going to be lifted up on a stick in such a way with such blood and such woundedness that he's going to be shaken and his blood will sprinkle and cleanse nations. It goes on and says that that the chastening in Isaiah 53 now, um, starting in verse, let's start in verse four. Surely he, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and yet we, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we were healed. We hear details in verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And we know that on the right and the left, he had thieves, wicked men, one who denounced him, the other who confessed him. We know that even though he was penniless and he'd just a week before ridden into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, that he would now be laid in the most beautiful of borrowed tombs, a tomb of a wealthy man and a tomb that had never been used before. He would be a rich man in his death. And you don't bury living people. This guy has poured himself out and he's dead, dead, dead. And not only that, But in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Okay, let's hang out right there for a second. A guilt offering is the most expensive and most serious of the offerings. It's the offering that is given because we have defrauded our brother or sister or we have defrauded God. And one of the ways that we defraud God is by our failure to praise him. One of the ways that we defraud God is to treat his holiness as though it's ordinary. And when you did this, like suppose you were supposed to pay one of those vows and you didn't do it. Or suppose you were supposed to pay somebody a debt and you didn't do it. You brought what you owed You brought a 20% surcharge. You brought the largest of the offerings that you could afford and the best of the offerings that you could afford. You repaid to the person that you owed. You gave the priest the 20% and you made the offering. But this time you didn't eat of it. You didn't benefit from it. It was incredibly costly. And what... Isaiah is indicating God is saying about this servant is that he's going to pay it all. That every time we took the Holy One is not holy, Jesus is going to pay for it. Every time we should have praised him and given thanks, he's going to pay for it. And the result is going to be that his people will praise him. In fact, here's the problem. The rest of verse 10. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Okay. <laughs> and the good Lord, the, the, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. Okay. 
How does how did dead people then see their grandchildren? Okay. How do dead people prolong days not only for themselves but for the rest of us? And how do dead people prosper in the hand of the Lord? And if this were a problem for me, we could just chalk it up to me being dumb. Okay. But this was a problem for the rabbis. <laughs> and they had a few possibilities. One possibility is this. Well, Messiah would do all these things and he'd die. But that doesn't seem to fit the narrative at all in this. Another possibility is this. Messiah would appear to die, but he really wouldn't die. He'd just suffer and then come and then kind of come back. But we know that guilt offerings are not guilt offerings until they're offered. And so that would mean that his sacrifice would be insufficient. Well, there's another possibility. Maybe, like John the Baptist, there were thought there'll be two messiahs. Maybe we need to wait for another one, the one who'll do the other stuff. Maybe there's a messiah who will suffer and a messiah who will reign. And that was all the ideas they could come up with. And they were all great ideas, but none of them fit. Because the problem was the resurrection was a reality that was widely foretold and never understood, never foreseen. It's sort of like this. What if someone from far off loved you and every day they wrote you a letter about how they were taking care of you, the things they were doing, and they enclosed in that letter a puzzle piece? Now, this is someone that you were getting to know, but you've never seen. So you lay down the first puzzle piece and you say, oh, okay. And then the next day there comes the next puzzle piece and that fits with the first one. And then the next day they send another puzzle piece and that fits with the second one and the third one and so on until you almost have a complete picture and you're saying, oh, I'm getting a picture of what this person is like, but how will I recognize them when I see them? Well, anyone could come far away and say, I'm the one who sent you all those letters. And I was telling you how much I love you and I've been taking care of you and, and I'm the one. And you could say, prove it. I really want to know if you're the one. And so stranger after stranger comes and says, I'm the one who's been doing this for you because I love you. And you say, prove it. And they say, I can't. But then comes a stranger and, he, and the stranger says, I love you. I've been taking care of you. I've been writing you those letters of how much I care for you every day. And you say, well, I want to know it's you and I want to believe it's you, but how will I know it's you? And he says, here. And he gives you that last puzzle piece. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection is the piece that makes sense out of everything else. G.K. Chesterton said this way. He said, when you finally find the key to unlock a door, you get so excited. But imagine discovering that key unlocked every door. That's what Jesus does. And that's what his resurrection does. It's the moment that makes the sense out of everything else. In the light of resurrection, suffering makes sense. Difficulty makes sense. Impossibility makes sense. Pain makes sense. His resurrection makes sense of 2,000 years of prophecy 
and millions of years of history. And that's what I've got for you this morning. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you, love. Happy Easter. The Lord is risen.